John chapter 10 as we continue our study through this gospel. We're almost halfway through. John 10, we'll be looking today at verses 22 uh, to 42. Let me read for us. Please follow along in your own copy of God's Word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. The the text today is a simple continuation of the text that we looked at two weeks ago. You see some of those similar themes of Jesus positing himself to be Uh, God's primary care provider. The analogy there was a shepherd. But the point was care from God comes through Jesus. And so it continues here. My concern pastorally this morning is that such a reality often fails to seep into the lives of those who claim to be his sheep. We can all talk a big game about Jesus being our shepherd, the one who defends us, our caretaker. And yet, stunningly, our lives often look no different than those who have no shepherd at all. 
I was recently reminded of this through a book that was recommended to me by one of our elders entitled The Gospel of Wellness, Gems, Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care. Now, I'm not going to commend the book to you. It's probably uh, written from a very liberal slant. I'm about halfway through and find some things utterly shocking. But what has been stunning to me is the fact that in this, the most scientifically advanced time in our entire world, when there's been more medical research and more medical breakthroughs than ever, people find themselves to be, or at least think themselves to be, more sick than ever. In fact, it's somewhere to the tune of now $4.4 trillion a year is spent on, spent on some form of health care or wellness. In fact, I was especially stunned when I was coming across this one passage in which uh, it was saying that people are so worried these days that we now have new diseases that don't even really have names, at least some that would not be recognized by the Mayo Clinic. The, the two terms that I'm going to refer to in just a moment, every one of you have heard and know and maybe have even felt in some way, and I'm not denying the reality of what's being felt here, but I want to tell you there's not actually a, a diagnosable medical condition for this. It's called adrenal fatigue. You're like, oh yeah, I know that. I know that feeling. It's normally people's best attempt to explain why everybody's so tired all the time. And adrenal fatigue, hypothetically, would be that which would come from somebody being in fight-or-flight syndrome too long. Eventually, your adrenal glands just supposedly burn out. (laughs) Or they become overactive. But we are in fight-or-flight all the time. We see stuff on social media, and we're riled up. We hear things on the radio, and we're riled up. Stuff happens at our workplaces or in our families, and all of a sudden, we just want to fight somebody. And then sometimes you just hear this stuff and you want to escape. It's not fight all the time. Sometimes it's flight. It's like, I've got to get away from this. I need to to do some meditation. I, I need to do some yoga. I need to stretch. I need to go for a walk. Or people find other more active forms of escape, whether that be how much they look at their smartphones or how much they actually dive down the social media rabbit hole or whether it be some kind of substance when somebody's saying, doctor, I must have something, I cannot turn it off. And again, there could be biologically explainable reasons why this is happening. But what's fascinating is that this malady of concern and worry and anxiety and trouble seems to afflict God's people just as much as it does those who are not God's people. I am not by any means suggesting that because Jesus is your shepherd, all physical problems will dissipate. That's health, wealth, prosperity gospel. That is not what we teach here. But the truth is, much of this This problem, this pain, comes from the way that we think and the way that we process and the way that we emote. And there at least should be some substantive differences between those of us who say that Jesus is our shepherd and those who have no shepherd. And so, John 10 was written. It was written so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine shepherd, the one who can care for our souls. Like it was written to provide hope and healing 
For people who are scared of all kinds of things, illegitimate and legitimate, like death and eternity itself, it's providing hope. It's providing encouragement. And so we revisit this theme of Jesus as the divine shepherd one more week. In our last time together, we actually pointed out that on the heels of Jesus healing the blind man and showing care for this individual that the religious leaders like cast into the margins and excommunicated, Jesus showed care for this guy by healing him, his eyes, and then saying, hey, come follow me. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the son of man. And on the heels of that, the Pharisees were like, no, you, you're not that. You're, you, we're not blind. Uh, we're the ones that are the care providers. You're not the care provider. And Jesus corrects them and says, no, I am. Let me tell you a story. And he starts talking about sheep and shepherds and fences. And basically, we learn from that figure of speech, that symbol of the shepherd, that Jesus is God's primary care provider insofar as he is the door to divine care, the doer of divine care. That's where we've been so far. He's the door to the care that we need from God. He's the doer of it. He's the one that accomplishes it by laying down his life. And now here in this text, we're going to see the third aspect of the divine care that Jesus provides. He is the defender of it. He doesn't just provide it to you and say, do your best with it. He actually keeps you in it. And we'll see Jesus as this defender from two different, two different perspectives or ways. First, he is the defender of divine care as noted by his assertion. He's going to say it in verses 22 to 30, and then he's going to affirm it in verses 31 to 42. So Jesus, he's the defender of divine care. He's the one that will make sure that it gets done. He asserts this in verses 22 to 30. He affirms it in verses 31 to 42. Now, you'll notice that he does make this assertion a couple months about after this first one took place. It says that there's a new feast. It's the Feast of Dedication. Now, I know we aren't very familiar with the Jewish calendar, but it would be good for you to know that in modern parlance, the Feast of Dedication is also called Hanukkah. It takes place around Christmas time. In fact, I go in to Target these days, and I already see the Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa stuff up already, and it's, it's, pre, it's pre-Halloween. In fact, my mother has already decorated the entire house for Christmas. She is that kind of person. It's there, it's something that we get excited about, and it was something that they would get excited about too. Obviously, they didn't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> they don't even know who Jesus is yet. In fact, the question they ask, are you the Christ, shows that their religious celebration, Hanukkah, had nothing to do with him. So don't get those confused in your meandering your way through society and culture. The Jewish celebration of Hanukkah is basically a time where they would look back to around the 150s BC when the temple had been overran by this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was determined to actually make the Jewish people Greek. And he did it in the most disgusting of ways. Like he made all the high priests eat pork. He then actually toward, uh, he sacrificed a pig on the altar to God. And then on top of that, uh, he would murder several people who would actually resist him in any way. He was a, 
a disgusting man. He was not about, you know, cultural cooperation. It was total cultural assimilation. In fact, he actually put a, a statue in the temple dedicated to Zeus. It was a low point in Jewish history, but it's one that's not written about in our canonical Old Testament. If you ever read the Apocrypha, which is not inspired but interesting, you'll learn of this in the book of Maccabees because this guy named Judas Maccabeus would actually come up and he would overrun the temple, he would kick out Antiochus Epiphanes, and he would restore worship back to the temple as evidenced by the lights of the temple burning once more. And so, a few years after that, they said to commemorate this great victory, the overthrow of Antiochus Epiphanes, let's light these candles for eight days to commemorate this particular victory. It was to remind them of this renewal of worship, that God was still working. The, like the, the candle of hope had not burnt out. And so Jesus finds himself back in Jerusalem a couple months later at another one of these festivals. But here's the difference. Not everyone had to come. It's not a pilgrimage, but it is a highly religious time. And so, he shows up once more at one of these times where everybody's thinking about future hope, thinking about God's miraculous intervention into this world, and he starts teaching again. And remember, last time they wanted to kill him when he presented himself as the divine shepherd, and it's not much different this time. But they decide to ask him in a question format like, okay, No more tricks, no more games, no more allegories. Who are you? The text even says that they surround him. They surround him and they say, are you the Christ? Now, that's a very important word because the Christ to them actually meant like David on steroids. Are you going to be the political leader that we've been looking for? And Jesus says something very interesting. He responds by saying, basically, I told you already, and you do not believe. Now, I want you to know something. Jesus, in the book of John, has not yet publicly called himself the Christ. He said that to the Samaritan woman. You remember that? She says, are you the Christ? He says, yes. But Jesus has called himself something greater than their conception of the Christ. They think the Christ is David on steroids. Jesus is saying, I'm not just David on steroids, I am deity. I mean, he said this through, to these guys in particular by positing himself to be one with the Father. We read that in John chapter 5. He said that he's the light of the world, just like was seen in Exodus. He also said that he is the one that preceded Abraham as the I am. He takes on the divine name of God. I mean, he's saying like, sure, you can ask about the political Christ if you want to, but I'm even more than that. I am God in human flesh. He says, I've already told you this, and I didn't just say it, but I showed it in the things that I've done. I've done the things that only God could do. Most recently, the healing of this blind man. We read that again in Isaiah 43. That was something that they were going to expect in the end times when God would show up on the earth again. Beautifully read for us this morning. But did you note that? When God shows up on the earth again, people will receive sight. Their ears will be unstopped. And yet Jesus has this track record of doing that kind of amazing stuff. And we know that actions speak louder than affirmations. He's already shown them who he is And yet, they do not believe. Look at verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Now, pause there for a second. Clearly, they're responsible here because they don't believe. I'm wagging my finger for a reason. You don't believe. I can see him saying that. But we've got to ask a question. Why don't they believe? Why, why can't they just muster up enough faith to believe? What, what does the text say? Because you are not among my sheep. Now, friends, I understand that when you hear something like that, it's like, that's not a good reason. <laughs> we don't like the idea that God didn't make some of those dudes his sheep. Like, we want it to be all their fault. And it is all their fault. Jesus says, you don't believe. And at the same time, he gets back behind that and says, because you're not my sheep. This is, this is heavy, but this is the text. This is just what it says. I, I wouldn't know how else to explain it. It's not the other way around. He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Remember, the Father has given some sheep to the Son, and the Son will make sure that those sheep are taken care of, and He's going to follow this on into the next few verses. Look at this. They are being condemned because they don't believe, because they don't belong to God. And now notice verse 27. He's going to contrast it with those who do belong. Notice, this is what His sheep look like. My sheep, verse 27, hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. How do we know who's a real sheep? Well, here it is. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And notice what also is true of them. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he repeats it again, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Pause there for a second. The emphasis on the care that Jesus' sheep receives is on Jesus himself and not on the sheep. He says, I'm going to care for you. I will give you eternal life. I will hold you in my hand. And then he says, my Father who has given you to me will hold you in his hand. The, the grammar is inescapable. We're talking about eternal care provided from God and God alone in Jesus. There's just no way around it. Why is it that we are so secure in Christ, we who are His sheep? Because the Father was working in us to lead us to avail ourselves of His care in the first place, and the Father is still working in us to keep us in that care. I grew up in a in a denomination that actually uh, had a lot of trouble with this verse. Um, the, I don't want to call it out in particular, but I will call out the doctrine. The, the, the thing that we would do here is we would say, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way that anybody could really um, come to faith in Jesus and be stuck there for the rest of their lives. Man has a free will. Therefore, if man freely comes to God, he could choose to freely leave God. In fact, uh, we called it not eternal security. Maybe you've heard that term before. We would use the phrase conditional security. 
Just as uh, like one's, you know, receiving Christ is conditioned upon faith, one staying in Christ was conditioned upon faith. I see some people's minds working. <laughs> it's a logically consistent position. It's not biblically true, but it's logically consistent. I want you to follow it for a second. If it's up to you to come to Jesus, if the reason why you ever get Jesus' spiritual care applied to your life is because you did it, well, it would naturally make sense that you're the one that stays in it. Now, if God had to do something over and above you to bring you into Jesus' care, it would make sense that God would do something over and above you to keep you in Jesus' care. You know what I'm saying? Now, you say, why would anybody want to believe that? Why would it, who would make a denominational distinctive of, of conditional security? Well, here, here was the motive. It's so good. It's so good. Those brothers and sisters are trying to figure out what to do with those folks, typically in childhood, who say, oh yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then at 25 years old, they're off on their own, totally hate Jesus, don't give anything for his church or his people, and are living all to themselves. Maybe they've rebelled against God uh, sexually or uh, philosophically. They just deny the fact that God exists. And so these guys are, are trying to say, okay, we can't say that these people are actually, like, like they're actually Christians. They, they must have walked away. And so you say, well, what do they do about this where it says that no one's going to take them out of my hand? They said, no one, no other person can take them out of my hand, but they could leave his, your hand, God's hand, if they wanted to. <laughs> what do we do with that? Do you know that experience, friends? I mean, let's just dive deep on this for a second. Do you know anyone who, like, raised their hand, walked the aisle, signed the card, claimed to be a part of Jesus, or even baptized in a church, and at some point just totally walked away? What do you do with that? You say, they were in and they were out? The text is saying that they were never in his hand to begin with. Now let me defend against an opposite error. Because some of us in decrying conditional security, like, of course not. That's trash. There's no way. We don't believe that. Would buy into the opposite error of what I would call carnal security. Carnal security is as long as somebody made a positive affirmation, like a head nod toward Jesus, they're in forever. So what do we do with that? Are they really... His forever? Well, the question is, were they ever His? Now, we can answer that from the text. This is very important because you know these people, and you need to love them and care for them well. Look again at your Bible, particularly verse 27. What does it say about Christ's sheep? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Who is a sheep of Jesus? A sheep hears the voice of the Lord Jesus and they heed the voice of the Lord Jesus. They follow him. A sheep is not someone who comes down to the altar. A sheep is not one that necessarily signs a card. A sheep is not one that gets baptized and supposedly joins a church. A sheep is one who recognizes Jesus for who he is and then follows him accordingly. Like, that's how you can tell 
And this is the more traditional doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. (laughs) There's your best term, perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly saints will persevere in good works unto the end. This is a supernatural work to get in, and it's a supernatural work to stay in. The text is clear. So you can be assured, friends, if God has enabled you to hear the voice of Jesus, and it is your desire to follow him as God and Lord, he will keep you there. For those who just superficially made a response to Jesus at some point and then at some other point drifted away, 1 John, same author by the way, will actually explain this in chapter 2. He says, they went out of us because they were never of us. They were never of us. So what does this do functionally? What Jesus is leading us to do here is to go all in on him. He knows that this is going to offend his opponents, but listen to me. If you're here today and you're actual sheep of Jesus, you need to be affirmed in this. I want you to actually be strengthened and encouraged and uplifted in light of this. I want you to know that all the security that you need has been and will be experienced through Jesus. Through Jesus. He is initiating, he is sustaining, he and the Father together are one in this. Notice verse 29. This is, you want to know the fun things that happen from somebody that's trying to do, like, uh, study in Scripture well? So one of the things that I, I try to do is, like, I try to translate the, the text from the, the Greek, because I took, like, years and years of Greek. I'm not good at it, but I'm good enough to, like, be able to come up with a rudimentary translation. You know what was funny this week? I was doing that. And I messed it up. I messed it up big time for like two days. I thought that the, the verse should read this. <laughs> this is funny. So <laughs> I was reading it as like uh, verse 20, um, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then listen to how I translated verse 29. But look at your Bible. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I translated it my hand twice. I think it's just because my eyes went up to the previous verse. Well, I was teaching the dudes on uh, Wednesday morning about like, how to study the Bible, and one of the things that we were talking about was studying the Bible prayerfully. And so I was like, I need to practice that. Before I read my Bible Thursday, I'm going to be praying that God would open my eyes and I would see what's there. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I see it. It doesn't say my hand twice. It says no one will take them out of my hand. Jesus says that. And then it says that the Father who has given them to me, who is greater than all, no one will take them out of his hand. Now you've got Jesus saying, I keep him in my hand. And you've got the Father saying, I keep him in my hand. And now it makes a whole heap of difference on how you understand verse 30, which says, I and my Father are one. We're in this thing together. Have you thought about that? The fact that it isn't just God generally, but it's God and the, God the Father and God the Son working together for your eternal security and well-being. Look, I know the empty promises of two people or two persons being involved in a, in a situation. I'm a divorced kid, post-divorce. I mean, I have, I'm not divorced. But my parents were, and I remember it's well-meaning. All of you have been through this, said to it. Well, now you're going to have two parents. <laughs> okay. It doesn't really, it's not all it's cracked up to be. 
But this, now you're going to have two persons of the Trinity holding you, securing you, wrapping you up in their eternal love and affection. It is all on Him if you are indeed His sheep. This is beautiful. This is comforting. And the whole thing reminds us that this care doesn't just come from God generally, but God through the Son specifically. Remember that old song? Did you ever sing this as a kid? If you grew up in church at all, you had to at some point have sang, he's got the whole world in his hand. Anybody? I don't know how many verses there are. They can just keep going and going. He's got mama and daddy in his hand. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister. I mean, it just kind of keeps going. You know, and the great thing about that song is it teaches children that, yeah, okay, God's in control of all things. But what's interesting about this is that the he, if we understand John 10 well, isn't just the father generally, but that care is exercised through the son specifically. The son is the means by which one enjoys the sovereign care of the father. There is no security from God apart from Jesus. You say, "Ah, Justin, this is heavy. I, I just really like the idea of being secure. Listen to me, please. You're secure in Jesus Christ as Lord and God, the one who is one with the Father. The text says, I and the Father are one. This is the one who's doing the securing. The one there, by the way, if you want to get really geeky on the grammar, It's not masculine, it is neuter. Jesus is not saying, I and the Father are the same person. That would be the theological error of modalism, that, oh, God and the Father and Jesus, they're all one thing and they just changed masks. There's persons involved, but they are one of essence, thus the neuter. One being, one being, one God... Three persons, salvation happens in Jesus. You say, for some of you who are like, ah, that's not all that practical. Let me tell you why it is practical. Because some people are seeking this kind of security and care in just deity generally and not Jesus specifically. This is why, like, it matters, and this is why I sometimes sound mean when I refer to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Oneness Pentecostals, and you're like, dude, I don't like you calling out those other denominations. They're not denominations, they're cults, because they don't believe that the care provided by God comes through Christ, who is both Lord and God, one with the Father. They've made Him something lesser then. And so the doctrine matters, friends. But here's the deal. For those of you who struggle with like, things being so esoteric and so doctrinal, I get it. Because that in and of itself is worthless unless it's connected to something. See, our problem, friends, is not with doctrine. It's with disconnected doctrine. Notice what Jesus does here. He connects this to their care. Like, here's the deal, friends. The fact that the Father and the Son are one assures us that we will be forever taken care of. This informs our security. Like, he's not something lesser than. It's not like Jesus is just a good religious teacher and a good example and we're doing our best to follow him. He is none other than God and he will ensure that we will be brought to him 
in safety on that final day. It's connected to our care. Where, let me ask you this way. Let's make it more connected. Where do you go for care? <laughs> I'm thinking of the book. But when you're feeling it, and it's like, man, it's getting bad. I, fight or flight. I'm getting fight or flight right here. <laughs> what do you reach for? Where do you go? I get it. There are common means of grace available to us, but this special one is being presented here. Do you run to Christ and say, all is well with my eternal soul? My body may be broken irremediably. My relationships may not be able to be salvaged between now and the time that Jesus comes back. I don't know how your 401k is doing these days. It's probably not great. But you look at that, what, what do you do with that? When the finances aren't where you want them to be, where do you go? What are you looking for? Where is refuge? Jesus here is presenting himself as the solution to say, I got this. You know that term, I got this? Don't you like that? Somebody's got it. <laughs> it's his hand. Or sometimes we use this, this language to comfort one another. Yeah, he's got a good hold on the situation. Jesus has got a good hold on the situation. He is comforting us. He is caring for us. That is good news, friends. And that is what we must be constantly reminded of. Jesus asserts it here, that he is the defender of divine care. He got you in. He keeps you in. But it's one thing, let's transition, it's one thing to say that you are the defender of divine care. It's something else to show it. Like the saying may provide clarity, but it's the showing that will provide conviction. Now, this thing takes place not as a speech, but as a downright life or death argument because they pick up on what Jesus is laying down. They don't just think, oh, I and the Father get along. They're thinking, oh, he just said <laughs> that he and the Father are one of being, as evidenced by the fact that the guys literally start scrounging around for big rocks to hurl them upon Jesus, lynching him publicly. By the way, they did not have the right to do that. I mean, they were going to do this at risk of their own lives. This isn't the first time they've tried to kill him. Often, they're trying to work through the legal authorities to get him killed. But there's a couple times in John 8 and also here where they get so angry with him that they actually pick up stones and they're going to execute him there on the spot. Consequences be damned. I mean, the Romans did not give them the authority to do capital punishment. They had to rely on the legal process, and yet here they're going to risk their own life. That's how angry they are. So they're scrounging around for rocks, and Jesus knows what's about to happen here. And I want you to understand exactly what he says. This is mind-blowing. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. John remembers that. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus is thinking quick here because this is not the way that the Father appointed for him to die. This is not the place. This is not the time. And so he says, okay, you're going to stone me. I see that you're angry. I see that you're picking up the stones. Uh, just tell me, what work of mine are you going to stone me for? Now, that's, that's important. He doesn't say, what saying of mine, what work of mine. Jesus is going to point them to, not through what he says, but through what he has shown he puts the emphasis on the works, and notice this, they don't, they don't care about the works. <laughs> they say in response, 
It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They heard what he was saying, which is so ironic, right? Because Jesus, it's actually this way, Jesus being God made himself man, but they see it the other way. You being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them. Notice how he defends himself. He does it first with just a quick reference to an Old Testament scripture. He answered, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Paul's, does anybody know that Bible verse? I didn't either. (laughs) It's Psalm 82.6. You could go back and look at it. In that particular passage, um, God is actually assuring people that even those who had been entrusted with some divinely delegated responsibilities will one day be executed for unfaithfulness. So whether you think that God is speaking to judges or to the children of Israel, the truth is the term Elohim, which is often translated God in the Old Testament, it could be little g or it could be big G, is sometimes given to men. It can, Elohim can sometimes refer to kings. Elohim can sometimes refer to people who are high up the, the uh, socioeconomic political food chain. So in this case, the point is the word Elohim got applied to some people who God had entrusted with some divine responsibility, like a judge or a prophet, but they weren't doing it well. And in Psalm 82.6, it's going to ultimately say, God's going to kill you anyway, even though he's called you God's. It doesn't mean that they're ontologically gods. It's just meaning that the term got used for them. Now, Jesus, he knows the Bible so well. He uses this just to say, hey, uh, just a heads up, guys, even if I did call myself, you know, by the term Elohim using the Hebrew, it's not going to be a big problem because God did the same thing for other people who you would consider be mortals. But he's actually arguing from lesser to greater. Notice this. He says, verse 35, if he called them gods... If he used the word Elohim to these rulers, to whom the word of God came, judges, prophets, whoever it's referring to, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He's just saying, guys, it's not consistent. Like, they were entrusted with some divinely delegated responsibility by being given the word of God as judges or prophets. He says, I have actually been sent from heaven, consecrated, set apart by God himself, and I didn't even say that I was God, I said I'm the son of God. If that is confusing for you right now, it's okay. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Because it isn't the major part of Jesus' argument. He's just buying himself some time because they're about to kill him. And he's saying, hey, I've got Bible verses to prove that you shouldn't kill me right now. Here's one. But now notice how he goes on the attack. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Do you get that? Did you hear the word works again? This is the fourth time, four times in this little passage, he talks about his works, his works, his works. It's not just about what he says, it's about what he shows. He's not just attesting to it, he is affirming it. And what does he do with them? These guys who are trying to kill him, please get this for a second. Because yet, like at what point do you just give up on somebody? I don't know. 
But Jesus, even with people having stones in hands, ready to murder him, says, hey, guys, you don't have to believe what I say. Just believe what I do. Would you just believe? Believe the works. If you don't want to trust what I'm saying, trust what I'm showing you. Believe the works. He's appealing to them one more time while they're trying to kill him. But on what basis is he appealing to them? He is appealing to them on the basis of that which he does. And friends, that is a powerful thing to contemplate when calling others to faith in Jesus. Anybody can say they're this, they're that. Anybody can make the claim. Few people have the conduct to back it up. Look, this is a truth in all of life. I mean, it's, the, it's the, one of the piranhas of modern-day advertising in which everybody claims to be the best and the greatest and the fastest and the cheapest. And anytime you're looking for some kind of service to be done, you're not looking for the guy that says, well, I'm actually a mediocre repairman. I charge a little too much and I'm kind of slow. The way people present themselves is, I'm amazing. I, I, I am the best repairman out there. People say whatever. What matters is what they show. So what do we do? We don't even listen to what they say anymore. We're like, okay, I need to see some proof. So you look on their website and you try to see jobs that they've done. You see the pictures to, that supposedly prove that they've done these things. You read, you read testimonials, reviews, five-star ratings, one-star ratings. You're trying to find like, all right, do they actually do these things? Not just do they declare these things, but do they do them? So you're looking for that. You're looking for anecdotes. You're looking for other people like, hey, have you used such and such? I want to know if they actually do this stuff. Like, can, can they actually do what they say that they do? Jesus here is buying into a very similar logic. He's presenting to them say, look, I get it. You don't want to believe what I say? I've already told you multiple times, but have you seen what I've done? Have you seen what I've done? Take what I've done and now contemplate whether or not you would trust in me as the one who is God and from God. And what is it that he's done? What is it that these guys have seen him do? Well, they've seen him raise up a man on the Sabbath day who hadn't walked his entire life. They've seen him heal a man born blind, something that had never been done in the history of the universe. I mean, they've seen him do some pretty amazing stuff. And let's keep this in mind of the ultimate readers. They would see him do something more amazing. Next chapter, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then a few more chapters later, he's going to raise himself from the dead. Who's ever done these things? This is the commendation to believe in Jesus. Not just what he declares, but what he does. You say, ah, yeah, of course. But I mean, I'm reading this. If you're a non-Christian here today, I could easily hear, hear someone saying, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, of course, John the Apostle thinks that, and Matthew and Mark and Luke think that. I don't know if I can believe them. Uh, friends, how do you believe anybody? Let's take your handyman, for example. Did you go and see him do those previous works that he put on his website? Do you know those people who left the reviews? I mean, all of us at some point are trusting that people like, actually did what they said they did. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Nobody in history ever did the stuff that he says he did. There's nobody. And I'm not trying to just do the, like, the, the tear down the world religions game. I mean, but just think through it for a second. Like, no one ever had that kind of impact for three years upon the world. 
It says in another one of the Gospels that he basically abolished all of Judea from disease. Totally. And then, of course, it came back after he left. But the truth is, like, Gandhi didn't do that. (laughs) Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. This is the one that's done that, and on that basis, he's actually like presenting himself to say, just believe in my works. I would tell you for just believe in in those works and, and, and listen to that. There's only two alternatives in light of this final affirmation. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They're not convinced. They won't look at his works. At least they calm down enough to want to arrest him. But they reject him. And then look at verses 40 to 42. This is weird. This is a weird way for this section to close. You're reading this and you're like, should this be here? He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, that doesn't make any sense except for the fact that the people in, verses, in verse 39 reject him and the people in verses 41 to 42 receive him. What's the difference between those two individuals? This is fascinating. The people in verse 40 actually saw with their own eyes the amazing works that Jesus did. The people in verses 40 to 42 never saw with their own eyes what Jesus did. And listen to this. They never even saw John the Baptist do any works. Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist had been doing a ton of preaching. We first find this place in John chapter 1. Here's the difference between these guys. Those people believed John the Baptist and trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. And they never saw any miraculous works. If you feel that way, friends, you're like, look, it would be way easier for me to witness to other people. It would be way easier for me to believe in Jesus if he would just show up right now and do a magic trick. If you think that, I just want you to know that most of the people who have followed Yahweh in thousands of years of history did not see any miraculous works. They had to trust somebody else. And I love this because it's just the good old-fashioned way things get done. They believed John the Baptist, who never did any miraculous works himself, and they said, you know what? must be true. Everybody's choosing to believe somebody. And if you think that your eyes are all of a sudden going to unlock, unlock like, the, the secrets of eternity, I would just have you like, watch the most recent magician on America's Got Talent. That is not proof of anything. comes down to believing whether Jesus really did do these things and thereby declare himself to be one with God. I like that Jesus' greatest work, his greatest demonstration of who he was, wasn't merely the healing of a blind man or the healing of a lame man or walking on water or producing bread, but he said that his greatest demonstration of who he is would be dying and bleeding on a cross for not his own sin, but the sin of his sheep. He said that earlier in John 10, I lay down my life for my sheep, and notice this, and I take it up again. 
Anybody could die for people, but who else can dominate death and come back and declare victory over it for their people? None but Jesus. He died for the sin of his sheep, and he dominated the death of, that was deserved by all his sheep by coming back to life again. And that is great news, friends, that we are being declared once more to trust in, to believe in for our eternal security and joy and safety. It's all found in Jesus. He says that he is the defender of divine care. He shows that he is the defender of divine care. Aren't you glad that it's both? Is it just him speaking it? You sometimes you've got to back it up. It isn't just him showing it. If he shows it, you need to know the significance of it. it. I'm glad that he speaks and he explains who he is and how we're to respond. He's to assure us. I conclude with a very pastorally transparent concern. We end where we began. As an under-shepherd, Jesus is the shepherd, just as one of the under-shepherds here I look at this group, and I'm so glad to see you all here. And the, the truth is, I long for you to know experientially, realistically, practically, tangibly the security that only comes from the true shepherd, our Lord Jesus. It was a, you know, like I've been diving deep into all kinds of ancient Near Eastern sheep studies the last couple of weeks to, to like try to make sure I understand, you know, I mean, like literally, I don't think I've ever touched a sheep. Yeah, thank you. I know they're cute. It's, and I, so I, I'm, I'm out of my element, so I've got to do some research. And one of the most interesting things to me about this whole study is how people can discern domesticated sheep from wild sheep. Like, sheep, don't worry, they're not offended. They all look the same. You know, sometimes that's a very insensitive statement. They all look alike. Well, sheep, they don't care. They all look alike. I mean, it's really hard to tell if a sheep belongs to a shepherd or if it doesn't. There's such a thing as wild sheep. But here's one of the crazy things. Like one of the telltale signs, there's two, of whether a sheep is domesticated or wild. The first one is that wild sheep, when they eat, constantly look up. They do not keep their heads down because they've been groomed to have to take care of themselves. Domesticated sheep will lock in to the grass in front of them, and they do not get up until it's time to get up. You know, I look out at a crowd like this, I see all these sheep. I'm a sheep. How do I know which ones of you truly belong to Jesus, I think one sign would really be you just can keep your head down and keep feeding on what he's provided. If you're just kind of like showing up here to church today, you kind of float in every once in a while, but you're still like looking around, you're still like looking for something else, you're still desperate, you're still anxious, you're still needy, it may be because Christ is not yet your shepherd. And there's a second fascinating aspect about being able to discern domesticated sheep uh, from wild sheep or even other sheep that belong to another shepherd. And Jesus hit this metaphor over and over again, and I want to revisit it one more time. Sheep that belong to the shepherd hear his 
voice. They recognize his voice and they follow him. Still blown away by the fact that they have actually tried to test this by dressing other guys up to look like shepherds and to try to have them mimic the voice of another guy. And it does not trick the sheep who have a brain about this big around. God made it so that his true sheep hear the voice of their shepherd Jesus and they want to follow him. You ever had that experience before? Probably when you were watching Trinity Broadcasting Network, where you hear this guy and it looks like he's trying to like to feed people and tell people about Jesus, and you're like, something's off. This seems weird. Or somebody shows up to your door and they ask if you want to do a Bible study, and you let them start talking a little bit, and you're like, I, I don't, I, no, I don't think I'm going to be doing a Bible study with you. We hear the voice of our shepherd. We discern him to be who he really is. Friends, you don't have to be like, you know, this highly academic, theological type. But the truth is, you may not know how to explain it, but if you're a Christ sheep, you can tell when somebody's telling the truth and not telling the truth about Jesus. Something's off. And it's not only in recognizing who Jesus is, but in how he's called us to follow him. And here's where I end. Those who are truly Jesus' sheep want to follow him. They want to walk with him. They want to walk in the company of his people. Do they do it perfectly? No. Do they occasionally stray away? Yes. Are they slow sometimes? Absolutely. Do they sometimes not partake of that which they should partake? Absolutely. But the great thing is, generally speaking, they desire to follow Jesus. They desire to follow him in the company of his church. They desire to follow him by making a contribution for the sake of the gospel through their lives. They desire to follow him by cooperating with other saints who actually want to do the same thing. They desire to follow him through living a consecrated and holy life. I know that's the heart of many of the sheep that I see sitting here before me this day. And in light of that, I want to assure you of something. He's got you. He's got you. This week could have been terrible. He's got you. This season could just be outlandish. He's got you. Friends, you could be his sheep and still be disturbed only because you aren't actively reminding yourself that you already have a shepherd. I conclude with these words, this, this admonition from Martin Lloyd-Jones. is so wise, friends. This is in his book, Spiritual Depression, and I close with this. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, those times where we get anxious, those times where we feel like acute crisis, those times where it feels like something's going wrong. He says, the main trouble, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? (laughs) Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. (laughs) 
And what he's going to actually argue is that we then counter that by speaking to ourselves. Instead of listening out for all of the ways that we think the world is going wrong and all the ways that we are failing, we need to speak to ourselves the truth that Jesus is our shepherd. He's got us. Things are secure. Say it. Declare it. Believe it. Don't just listen. Talk this truth to yourself if indeed this is true of you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I want to allow you a couple minutes now to just pray quietly. Our musicians can come forward. But would you assess now whether or not you are truly one of his sheep? And if so, would you rehearse the truth that he's got you? (laughs) If you're not in Christ, I pray that this would be a time for you to reflect of your need for him. And if you have questions about what it would look like to follow him, talk to me or one of the other pastors after the service.